Hello, all you lovely people, and welcome to Numa. This episode will be a little bit different from my previous installments. Installments about which, according to your testimony, whose sincerity I've no reason to doubt, there's a modest amount of enthusiasm, and more than a little interest. For this... Before all else, I must thank you. Thank you for the kind words and encouraging notes with which you've graced my inbox, gladdened my heart, and of which, to be frank, I feel myself quite undeserving. So, again, thank you. This is, admittedly, a humble little channel, but one nonetheless, in which I see great potential. Together, I hope to realize that potential. And so, with that behind us, we'll be focusing on the subject of sleep. What follows isn't a meditation in any strict sense. If that's what you'd like, worry not. The episode posted just prior to this one, entitled how to fall back asleep will provide you with the needed content and assistance. For this episode, we're going to discuss methods and ways by which you might improve your sleep, by which you might ease your transition to that sacred state of slumber upon which nothing, and I mean nothing, should intrude. Or, to borrow from the vocabulary of the stiff, corporate, overly scientized community, to whose grand pronouncements we feel compelled not only to listen, but adhere, a word that's now universally applied in nearly every sector of life, how to optimize your sleep. Something about that term optimize is repellent to me. What do you think? It's too unpoetic. It's too mechanical, too inorganic, too robotic. Do you agree? Nowadays, we optimize everything from health to habits to relationships to internet connections to search engines to fuel efficiency to closet storage space you name it and there is a service dedicated to its optimization let us for once treat ourselves more like humans and less like widgets like beings not only with a material existence but a spiritual essence in need of equal care. Lest I further digress, let's refocus. For the next half hour or so, we'll review, from sunrise to set, the best things you can do throughout the course of the day to improve or optimize your sleep. Some of these things are anecdotal. I've implemented them and, to my restful delight, realized their good effects. For the maintenance of my sleep hygiene, I try to practice them every day. 
Others are culled from my readings and listenings from the books, podcasts, and lectures with which my spare time is filled. First, early light exposure is essential. The first thing to do upon waking up in the morning is to be exposed to natural light. Exposure at an early hour, when the sun is positioned relatively low in the sky, when, with a glow of childlike curiosity, it's only just peeking its glittering eye over the new horizon, upon which it pours its dazzling streams of gold and red, orange and yellow, by whose splendor the world is, as though it were a Monet painting, brilliantly suffused, is vital. Try to catch the sun early in his ascent. Pin him down early in his career. When you lay eyes on it, or at least laying eyes in his vicinity, it should have climbed only a few steps. This is integral for establishing your circadian rhythm and readying yourself for the day. Your circadian rhythm is your biological clock by which your sleep-wake schedule is regulated. Etymologically, it's formed by the union of two Latin words, circa, a word with which we're all familiar, meaning around, and diem, meaning day. Think of the Roman poet Horace's famous apothem, carpe diem, seize or really pluck the day. Early exposure to light will tune your circadian rhythm so that you can seize the day. Receiving this exposure in a sedentary state is fine, but better still is to get it while you are moving. If you can, go outside and walk around for about five to ten minutes. This is particularly conducive to the morning routine of those of us who own dogs. Man's best and oldest friend, dogs are a useful accomplice in getting us outside and enticing us to move at an early hour. Walking, barefoot if you can, is a stimulant than which nothing, not even coffee, is better. There's nothing quite like stretching your toes on the cold, dewy, grass, like feeling the energy of the earth beneath you as it rushes up through your heels. A barefoot walk does this and much more. It gently raises your heart rate. It opens up your lungs. It lubricates your joints and encourages optic flow. This optic or visual flow awakens the peripheral vision by which the amygdala, our almond-sized center of primal emotion, is suppressed. I, for one, go for a run in the morning, during whose course the sun rises to greet me. 
in this way, I get a lot of peripheral movement of the eyes, continuous forward movement and immediate and quite intimate sun exposure. Now, you can jog along with me if you choose, but an unhurried, gentle walk should suffice. It needn't be vigorous. The second tenant for good sleep is exertion, physical exertion. Hunger, Socrates noted, is food's best seasoning. Again, hunger is food's best seasoning. You'd be surprised how little adornment your dishes need when your appetite is aroused and your belly is empty. Likewise, exertion is sleep's surest aid. Exertion is your sleeping pill, your panacea to restlessness. Exertion, exercise, strenuous or moderate, physical activity. These are the charms by which fatigue is induced and sleep at the appropriate hour secured. Nothing is more unnatural for us as a species than to lead lives of slothful inactivity to embrace lives of languid passivity. We were made for more. We were built to move. Every bone in our body attests to this. Nothing, then, is more dissonant to our nature, more at odds with our purpose than to sink day after day, hour after hour, into office chairs, driver's seats, or luxuriant leather couches from which unless the walls around us are in an active state of collapse and the ceiling above us is crumbling on our heads, we refuse to be stirred. Against this unnatural sedentariness, every cell in our body revolts. They shout in unison the same resounding message. Move! The word streams through our veins, profuses our organs, and tickles our muscles to the point of contraction. We are made to move. We are built to move. We are born to move. It's a mandate about which nature is uncompromising, an edict to which we all must yield. Let us do so gladly. It is a joy to live in conformity with nature, which is, as you know, the fundamental lesson of the Stoics. We'll have more to say on exercise in another episode. You can refer to any of my guided walking meditations, an excellent place to start. At the very least, each and every day, do some aerobic activity. Engage in it for 30 minutes. If you can, do it longer. If you can, do it harder. Elevate your heart rate a bit. Walk, jog, skip rope, do cartwheels, ride a bike, row a boat, dance to some music, whatever you please, whatever fits your fancy, just so long as you move. For optimal 
fitness. And for optimal sleep, you should try to achieve about 10 to 20,000 steps per day. Do a bit of resistance training. Every commercial break, stand up and do 10 lunges. Every time you return to your office chair, do 10 squats. Every time you go to the kitchen or approach the refrigerator, do 10 push-ups. The payment of a physical toll will not only make you more temperate in your appetites, it'll make you fitter. When this happens, an active life will become not an anomaly or an imposition, but a habit. Cultivate that habit. Our third tenet of good sleep is mental exertion. Along with physical exertion, you should strive to exert yourself mentally throughout the day. Think of a difficult issue, one to which an answer doesn't readily, easily suggest itself. Devote some time to it. Commit some effort to it. I ask you, when did you last commit 15 deep, contemplative minutes to a single issue, without any interruption? Without letting your mind wander here, there, and everywhere, if only to avoid its task? When was the last time you immersed yourself in an abstract idea like, what is the good life, or what is the meaning of life, or what is freedom, or... Is man, by nature, good? The type of questions by which centuries of philosophers have been engrossed. Society, by and large, regards such sustained cognitive effort as eh, unappealing. It retreats at the challenge to grapple with something larger, higher, sublimer, subtler than itself. But the individual mind yearns for it. It wants nothing more than to step into the arena of thought in which it can truly contend with ideas stronger than itself. It's a consuming and humbling experience. Oh, and a tiring one as well. Take up the gauntlet. Expend some real cognitive effort. Remember, the brain is our most energetic organ. Of all the calories we consume, it demands the lion's share. It must be allowed, then, like the lion, to flex, crouch, inquire, leap, and play. It enjoys nothing better than stimulation, pondering, and intellectual exertion. If, in need of some ideas about which to think, visit my sister podcast, Finnerin's Wake, on which I present a series of ticklish topics by which your mental juices are sure to be stirred. Or read a book that strains, if only slightly, your comprehension. Read just above your level of comfort, though not too high above. I'll be releasing a series of sleep stories, great works of literature that will be perfect for this. Do a puzzle by which all your faculties of attention are recruited. Sketch an image for which your subtlest discernment and attention is uh, required. 
join this mental exertion with your physical exertion, and come the evening, your mind and your body will be happily, jointly fatigued. Our fourth point, the consumption of caffeine. If you drink coffee, tea, or any other caffeinated beverage, restrict its consumption to the forenoon hours and don't consume too much. In your consumption of it, you must be both timely and temperate. Try to make it such that 12 noon is the hour after which you'll take in no more caffeine. Why? It has to do with the half-life of caffeine. The half-life of something, or the amount of time required for the halving of its original amount, varies from one substance to another. For caffeine, it's between four to six hours. This means that over the course of, say, five hours, 50% of the caffeine will have been metabolized. You'll note that, despite the passage of those five hours, there's still quite a bit of caffeine lingering in your system by which, albeit less noticeably, you'll doubtless be affected. How long will you be affected? Well, how long before the rest of the caffeine is metabolized? That's the question. If five hours were required for its halving, then ten will be needed for its full elimination. So if you drank your last caffeinated drink at, say, 10 a.m., it won't be fully metabolized by and expelled from your system until about 8 p.m. in the evening. This, to me, seems like a reasonable caffeine schedule to which you can adhere. Any later, and you might imperil the ease with which you hope to fall asleep that night, especially if it's your goal to fall asleep around 10 or 11 p.m., the time at which many people tend to retire to their beds. Now, if you'd be so patient to suffer just a little bit of biochemistry for a moment, let me tell you about how caffeine works, how it operates. Once introduced into your system, caffeine plays the role of an antagonist, or a molecule with which another native molecule competes. That other molecule, an endogenous little compound, is adenosine. Endogenous just means within your own system, naturally occurring in that setting. Now, adenosine is your sleepiness chemical, by whose uh, accumulation you're made to feel, well, <laughs> sleepy. The more adenosine in your system, the drowsier you'll feel. Naturally, adenosine levels should be lower in the morning and higher in the evening. Whenever you consume caffeine, however, the adenosine is rendered inactive. The latter is powerless in the former's presence. If you consume caffeine later in the day, come the evening, your adenosine levels, though heightened, will fail to make you feel sleepy. They can't be triggered. The adenosine accumulates, but is basically inert. Caffeine prevails in this molecular contest.
you should want, as you approach your bedtime, as much adenosine and as little caffeine in your system as possible. Now, this is done in two ways. First, by abstaining from caffeine altogether. Or, if that's an unthinkable proposition, by carefully timing your consumption, constraining it to the day's forenoon hours. Of course, many of you listening are exceptions to this general rule. You can drink an espresso at 9 o'clock in the evening, eat coffee-flavored ice cream at 10, nibble on some chocolate at 11, and fall immediately to sleep. I live in southern Florida, where the coffee culture is as robust as the beans with which it's brewed. Many of my dearest friends are Latino, Cuban, Puerto Rican, Colombian, to whom cafecito is like mother's milk. They seem, through decades of exposure, to be unaffected by caffeine. They number among the exceptions. For the rest of us, cutting off caffeine before noon is advised. Fifth, we turn to dinner. You'll want to eat your last meal about two hours before the hour at which you plan to go to bed. Uh, the very worst feeling for me, by which I'm often afflicted, is going to bed with a full stomach. I feel bloated, heavy, unsettled, and unwell. In my case, it happens when, after fasting for 20 to 24 hours, I consume too many calories too late in the day. And depending on my work schedule, it's something I can't always avoid but you can succeed where I fail. If it's your plan to go to sleep at 10 p.m., say, try to complete your last meal at around 8 p.m. This, of course, means you might begin eating around 7 or 6.30. If you're like me, and you implement a mindful and grateful approach to eating, for whose implementation should you require some help, I have a few episodes posted. Your meal might take an hour to complete. If you're with friends or loved ones, with whom any proper meal should be spent, it might even take longer. I should say here, at the expense of sleep, friendship and community and intimacy with others should be prioritized. If you're engaged in a beautiful, ceaseless conversation by which your meal is carried off deeper and deeper into the night, worry not. The two-hour window is best, but in the face of friendship, it's pliable. It's no ironclad rule. That answers when to eat. To the question what to eat. I hesitate to offer a response. I have my own dietary preference, to which, under the guidance of my deeply read brother, Brian, I've been converted. For me, it works marvelously, and I can say, thanks to his wisdom and his recommended adjustments to my diet, I've never felt fitter and I've never slept better. 
Now, this is a topic on which I'll dilate, perhaps with him, in the future. For now, I'll tell you this. Carbohydrates, good, wholesome carbohydrates, should not be eschewed. They should not be avoided. An apple, a mango, a handful of blueberries, a couple of dates, a well-cooked sweet potato. These are the foods that adorn my dinner plate. You might prefer pasta and bread, starchy vegetables, or rice. What's important to know is that, regardless of their form, carbohydrates induce the release of serotonin, a neurotransmitter whose varied and multitudinous actions defy my ability to name them. I haven't the academic pedigree to do so, nor have I serotonin's elegant molecular structure tattooed on my dainty forearm, a trend to which many young women, I'm told, have sacrificed a little bit of their flesh. If, however, you're curious to know the extent and variety of its roles, give the chemical a quick Google search. You'll be overwhelmed by the results. So far as we're concerned, though, serotonin contributes to making us feel sleepy. And eating good, wholesome sources of carbohydrates two hours before bedtime should give your blood sugar ample time to return to postprandial or post-meal levels, while stimulating a healthy release of serotonin. I advise you to abstain from artificial or highly processed carbohydrates. You know the kind of which I speak. Tasty cakes, french fries, frozen pizzas. Undoubtedly, they will cause a rise in serotonin, but the concomitant spike in blood sugar, demand for insulin, and influx of empty calories will leave you less than nourished and far, far from healthy. An example of my dinner in case you're wondering, would be all the aforesaid fruits and a tuber, a large, grass-fed steak, ribeye preferably, farm-fresh eggs, and an avocado. After finishing the meal, go for a short walk. Barefoot if you can, clad in shoes if you must. Strap on your rollerblades, or do a few minutes of tai chi. Play catch with your son or dance with your daughter. The choice of movement is yours, but to move or not to move, this isn't a question over which you're permitted to ponder. Movement is crucial at this hour. It will promote gastric emptying, the process by which newly arrived food is mobilized down from the stomach to the intestines, in which digestion and assimilation really take place. For dessert? Surely you're not so austere as to refrain from a little nightly indulgence. I assure you, I am not. But try this splendid concoction instead. Chamomile tea with a dollop of raw local honey, over which you splash a spot of whole milk. This, the milk, gives it fullness of body and smoothness of taste. It's positively delectable. The honey provides a delicate, 
natural sweetness to which your body will approvingly respond. Get it from a local source, and with the comb if you can. And, in great abundance in chamomile tea, there is something called epigenin, a compound by which muscles are relaxed and sedation is invited. Warm tea, warm honey, warm milk. That's bedtime ambrosia, fit for a goddess or a king. Accompany this with a magnesium tablet and voila, sleep is near. You'll notice one word of which, till now, I've been very careful not to make mention. And that is melatonin. It should be avoided at all costs. You look at me with a face twisted in knots of bewilderment and disbelief. How so? Is not melatonin the essential soporific? The ultimate sleep aid for which, night after night, we are encouraged to reach? Sure, we are encouraged to do so, but this encouragement is the result not of altruistic sleep enthusiasts, like me, your humble speaker, but of sizable profit incentives, and very large companies. Melatonin is endogenous or exogenous. It can be made in the body, endogenously, or introduced to it from without, exogenously. Normally, before its availability in the form of a capsule, melatonin would be released by the pineal gland, a tiny little endocrine gland deeply set in the brain. In our prepubescent state, our pineal gland releases copious amounts of melatonin, by which, as a side effect, our growth is stunted. But this explains why, as infants and during childhood, we sleep so many hours. As we enter puberty, and, in good time, flower into adulthood, the pineal gland, prioritizing growth over sleep and maturity over childishness, suppresses the release of melatonin. So, given the sudden absence of melatonin after the age of, say, 16 or 17, would it not be wise, then, to supplement with it exogenously? The answer is no. For one, the amount consumed in a capsulized form far exceeds that for which your body, as an adult, has any natural accommodation. An adverse effect of this is that, as in your prepubescent state, the melatonin can actually stunt or retard growth. Also, there's this. While melatonin might assist some people in falling asleep, it's less effective in keeping you asleep. And it might even prevent you from diving deeper into sleep. And we move on to our sixth tenet. Watch the sunset and dim the lights. As the day commenced, so should it end. Twelve hours ago, you witnessed the sunrise. Now, gaze upon the glittering orb as it sets. 
your body can't misinterpret the message. Watching the sun fall speaks directly to your circadian rhythm. It speaks directly to your soul. These are the cues, the celestial signals by which your system is set and your mind calmed. Now, this next piece is potent, if you can manage it. Turn off, to the extent that you can, your electric lights. For illumination, replace them with candles. If not in your living area, do this in your bedroom, whilst observing, of course, all fire safety precautions. A soft, flickering glow instead of a beaming, radiant bulb is friendlier, gentler, kinder to the eye. What's more, about fire, there's something hypnotic. It's the one thing on earth by which all humans cannot but be fascinated. Watching a flame is better than any television program, any Netflix special, any sporting event. Of that, I can assure you. To whose power would you more willingly submit? By what display of nature are you more enthralled than a simple campfire dancing and burning and gyrating before you? I can think of none. Seventh, most obvious of all, avoid your screens. All that said, turn off your devices. Avoid looking at your screens one hour before your bedtime. During this hour, withdraw from all artificial LED pixelated light. You've had quite enough of it during the day. If you must continue staring at the screen just a bit longer, an urgent email that needs sending, a podcast script that needs writing and editing, put on a pair of blue light glasses. They're effective enough at raising a barrier, raising a shield between your eyes and the artificial light. If you can, read a book instead. Spend your final hour with actual words printed on a tangible page. No Kindle, no iPad, no e-reader. Regain that lost intimacy with a real, solid paper book. I, for one, like to combine deep breathing and reading. I lie on my back with my head propped up. On my lower chest, just above my rising and falling abdomen, my diaphragm, I situate my book. I ensure that I look at it with a downward gaze. This, a downward gaze, is an unfailing inducement to sleep. As you reach the bottom of the page, your eyelids will just about close, only to be reopened again. I guarantee you, there will come a line after which they'll not reopen. For your breathing, long exhalations should be preferred to long inhalations. The heart rate slows with the former and increases with the latter. You'll want your parasympathetic nervous system turned on. 
Breathing out slowly will help you achieve this. As an aside, the parasympathetic system plays a role in rest and relaxation. It is the counterbalance to the sympathetic fight-or-flight system, about which we hear so much, whose ringing alarm we need to dampen. Try this for your breathing. Inhale for a count of three seconds. Exhale for a count of nine. Repeat this three times. Do this while reading as your heavy eyelids close. Read in low light and in a cool setting. This is the eighth tenet, the temperature of your room. If you can, turn your thermostat down. If it's chilly outside, tolerably chilly, open a window. Don't risk cold, but let some of that chilly air in. If you can't do that, turn on a ceiling fan. Heat and sleep don't harmonize well. Here in southern Florida, that's a lesson quickly learned. <laughs> Wistfully do I look back to my life in New Jersey, when, in late November, I cracked open a window and welcomed the evening chill. Oh, I like to be cold enough to make my blanket a necessity. Not just an ornament, a fluffy ornament draped across a mattress. Now, we could discuss mattresses, but that's a subject slightly beyond my competence. I will say this, though. A cool or tepid shower about 30 minutes prior to bed is often a helpful intervention. Not only does it cleanse, but it calms and cools you. I think uh, we'll end there. This episode may have put you to sleep. Perhaps that was my ulterior motive. If that's the case, ignore everything I said, all the advice of which I unbosomed myself, and simply play this podcast at around 10 o'clock at night. If that's all you need, I humbly offer you my services. Of course, you can check out some of my other episodes pertaining to sleep. Be sure to subscribe to this channel. I'll be releasing content every week. But only do so if you find its content useful, delightful, different, fresh. Grace me. Crown me with a five-star rating. Without that, I cannot sleep. Leave a comment if you can, or email me at numa.meditation at gmail.com. Or visit my social sites by searching my full name, 
Daniel Ethan Finneran. Until next time, farewell and sweet dreams. <laughs>